know, it's interesting. Now, I've been doing RUF some 14, 15 years as a campus minister. And years ago, we used to have a Biblical World and Life View conference. I don't know if anybody, you, you, this was before your time, yeah. I don't think any, many people around here remember that. But we used to do a national conference in Atlanta in the fall that would be about Biblical World and Life View. We did a couple of those. I remember when I went to the very first one was when I went off to seminary. And I came to it. And it was fascinating to me that we didn't have a seminar. We had all kinds of different seminars, breakout sessions, but we had nothing about the arts. And it really, it really annoyed me, I remember, at that, at that seminar. And I remember the main speaker making some comments that were particularly negative towards anything to do with pop culture or rock music or anything like that. And I, I just thought, gosh, this is kind of crazy. But you know, one of the things that you have to realize is when you start talking about the arts, Within, in Christian circles, there are a whole range of opinions. People can get very intense about these issues. Um, for some people, they feel like, you know, if you don't give full expression to the arts, you're limiting the freedom of the gospel. And for others, they think that if you are giving any expression to arts, that you bought into worldliness. So you see, this is a lot, of, a lot at stake in these issues of Christianity and the arts. Not only that, but historically... Christians really, for, for most, most of Christian history, have not really thought of the arts as the arts. They've tended to think more in the Bible, for instance, it's more about craftsmanship rather than artists the way we think of, of artists in the modern sense. So um, we're going to talk some about some scriptures, but we're going to talk more about how principles from God's word, some ideas like common grace and the doctrine of creation, give us insight into how we should think about the arts. The biggest reason, though, that I think we should study this is not just because it's controversial and we should think through it, but because most of us, I think, think too smallly about Christianity. And, and we think too small about the arts in particular. We think too small about Christianity and about the arts in particular. One of the points that I want to make is that the arts are neither trivial nor are they merely dangerous. I think Christians tend to fall into one of two camps, especially when they think about more popular expression, but even not popular expressions of the arts. They tend to think that the arts are trivial. In other words, they're not nearly as important as things like evangelism. And that Christians, um, it's fine, you know, if you have a painting in your house, as long as you didn't spend too much money on it, um, that you could have given to the poor. And you better not uh, spend much time devoting yourself to that. And so what's arisen is this whole kind of idea that the arts are okay as long as you can use them to a bigger purpose, like evangelism or teaching people, okay? So that's, that flows out of the, the way a lot of Christians think of the arts as trivial. Therefore, to, to justify spending any effort or time or money on the arts, you have to have it serve a bigger purpose. Generally, evangelism is the one that's thought of. But then there are other Christians who think the arts are dangerous, and th th this is not a recent phenomenon. St. Augustine thought this. Calvin followed him in some ways and thought that, uh, that there were certain dangers. For instance, he thought music generally was more dangerous. And therefore, the best thing to do was to sing psalms. If you put good biblical words to music, then that was okay. Now, at one point, he was okay with instrumental music. But later, as he, as he went on in his life and career, he tended to get even more restrictive in his thoughts about music. But I'm not going to talk about that now. Actually, gonna, if you come to General Assembly, I'm sure none of you will. I'm going to do a talk on Calvin and the Arts there, which I think I'll probably podcast. So you'll have to wait till the summer for that. Um, so our thinking is, is, is too small. And, you know, here, um, on the other hand, a lot of y'all, I don't think, grew up in churches with that same kind of baggage. Now, what I'm saying is basically your parents and people that grew up like in the 70s, really grew up in a church culture that tended to be very suspicious of the arts. But your generation tends to more towards worshiping artists. If anything, people today think that artists aren't dangerous. They think artists are more in touch with God and with truth and with reality and authenticity and the things that really matter. And I think it's important that we think Christianly about all of these things. There's a guy, Steve Turner. He's a poet performance artist, he wrote a great little book on the arts called Imagine, Imagine, and he says this, he says, the movie director, actor, and rock star, he's an English guy, so that's kind of how they talk, are far more readily listened to than the preacher or theologian. We know more pop songs than hymns, 
more movie plots than Bible stories. There is more fanfare surrounding the opening of a new city art gallery than the dedication of a new church or cathedral. Now that's the reality. The arts are a hugely important thing in our culture. One of the reasons we want to study this is because of that. Because it's part of the world that God has given us to live in. Part of what it means to be a Christian is to be in the world, but not of it. This is what Jesus prayed for in John 17, his last prayer before going to the cross. John 17. And he prays it will be in the world, but not of it. And part of what the world that we're in is filled with arts and popular culture. It's huge. You can't get away from it. And Christianity believes and says that everything matters. All of life matters. Everything, including the arts, are part of God's world. And it's an important part of developing a biblical world like you. In RUF, we have several goals that we hope we will see worked out and developed in your life. You can think of them as fruit. If the gospel is at work in your life, one of the things that we hope we will begin to see is a biblical world and life view developing. Because of a couple things. We expect justification to set you free from worrying all the time about what God thinks about you. And we think we want you to be, have that question settled so you can then think in terms of how can I love my neighbor. And when you think about how can I love my neighbor, you have to think in terms of your gifts and calling and vocation, all those things kind of go into that. Then you need to think as well about sanctification. What does it mean to grow more and more like Jesus, more and more in love with God and his ways and his world? And one of the things that that means is that your sense of what's beautiful will grow. Sanctification should affect your sense of what's beautiful. And, and the arts are connected to that. We, we expect that justification will set you free to love your neighbor. And one of the ways to love your neighbor may be for some of you to be involved in the arts. Or it may be to be involved in appreciating the arts and enjoying God's goodness through that. So we expect that part of a biblical world life view, um, that justification, sanctification, and the third uh, thing that we call our principles, God's word, would all help you think better about the arts and enjoy the arts. See, again, um, part of what you need to be able to enjoy the arts is not just to think rightly about it, but to actually be set free to see that what God has made beautiful, we can enjoy. There's a great um, passage in 1 Timothy 1 through 4, 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 4, where Paul calls it a doctrine of demons to say that things that God has created to be received with thanksgiving um, are, are basically not things you should be involved in. And he specifically mentions certain foods and marriage, which is a way of saying sex. So there are certain people that were saying it's more spiritual to not eat certain foods and to, to not get married and not have sex. And what Paul says in answer to that is, no, everything that God has made is good. And what we're talking about with the arts is about understanding more about what God has made. As I prayed at the beginning, God has created a world full of God-glorifying potential. And the arts are part of that. And what it means to develop a biblical world life view, the third principle, Scripture, means that as we look to the Bible, we want to bring all of the principles to bear on how we think about the arts. And one of those principles is that God has made a good creation. And he, he put Adam and Eve in the garden to extend the garden to the whole cosmos. Do you understand? They were put in a cultivated part. That speaks of culture. And they were to take that, they were to take that out. The garden was to grow and expand. And what it means to be redeemed in Christ is you get brought back into God's mission, which is to bring all the God-glorifying potential, bring it to consummation, bring it to fruition. The arts are an important part of that, right? I, I like this quote from Francis Schaeffer. Francis Schaeffer um, had a particularly important ministry through a, a place called Labrie. Any of y'all heard of Labrie? Yeah, not as much anymore. Most people that you know that are Christians that I think think in a, a very free and honest way, a mature way about the arts, were probably influenced by him, either directly or indirectly. He was a pastor who went over, he basically was on the verge of losing his faith and went over to Switzerland, basically took a missionary gig over there so he could wrestle with God for a while. 
And out of that experience, some of his kids who were going to college would bring their friends back to their chalet in Switzerland uh, over breaks, and he would just talk with them about their struggles and their questions. And eventually this ministry developed where people could just go there and, and, and talk about their doubts and their questions and find somebody who took their questions seriously and developed this ministry called Labrie. They still have Labrie's all over the place, and you can go spend time and study one. Um, but anyway, Francis Schaeffer was very influential in helping people think about the arts and the importance of the arts. And he grew up with a Christian subculture was much more negative about the arts than it is today. Okay? But listen to what he says here. I think this is important. He says, as evangelical Christians, we have tended to relegate art to the very fringe of life. The rest of human life, we feel, is more important. Despite our constant talk about the Lordship of Christ, we have <coughs> narrowed its scope to a very small area of reality. We have misunderstood the concept of the Lordship of Christ over the whole of man and the whole of the universe and have not taken and have not taken to us the riches that the Bible gives us for ourselves, for our lives, and for our culture. The arts and sciences do have a place in the Christian life. They are not peripheral. For a Christian, redeemed by the work of Christ and living within the norms of Scripture and under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, the Lordship of Christ should include an interest in the arts. A Christian should use these arts to the glory of God, not just as tracts. He means not just as little evangelistic tracts. But as things of beauty to the praise of God. And artwork can be a doxology in itself. I think that's very helpful. What's a doxology? The doxology is praise God. It could be a praise to God in and of itself. So, it's important for part of a biblical world life view. It's also important... Because I said God has put you in a culture that's full of the arts and thinks the arts are very important. And it's vital that as Christians, we don't communicate to people that if you're a Christian, you don't care about one of the most important things to most people in our culture. In other words, if you're a Christian, you need to help people understand that Christianity does not mean that you have to quit caring about beauty and truth. Which are generally the things that people look to the arts for. And now, you know... When I say beauty, as we're going to go through this, you're going to realize that I think that after the fall, in a fallen world, often beauty and truth are in, are in conflict. That I'm not saying that the only art that's valuable is beautiful. I think there's a beauty in truth, which may be very ugly, actually. I think one of the most beautiful pictures in the whole Bible is in Zechariah chapter 3, where you picture of um, Joshua, the high priest, covered in excrement as he stands before the Lord ministering on the Day of Atonement. Right? It's, it's a very ugly picture. You know, the high priest covered in crap. Right? It's a strong word. I think it says filthy in the NIV, but it's a stronger word. Um, I think that's a beautiful picture because it's a picture of Jesus who's going to come one day and covered with our excrement is going to stand uh, before God the Father and is going to be obliterized. obliterized right? So I, I, you know, we'll talk about that more. But the, the arts are a particularly important influence in our culture today. For many people, the arts are as close to God as they hope to get. I remember a few years ago, John McEnroe, the tennis player, had an evening talk show, a late night talk show. Did anybody see that? It was horrible. I think it lasted like a couple weeks. But I, I saw one of the first, maybe the first episode, first night that it was on, and he had Sting uh, on. And he was talking to him, and this was, I don't know if you, you guys probably are too young to remember this, um, but probably about the time y'all were in middle school, Sting had an interview in Rolling Stone magazine where he talked about how he could have sex for like six to eight hours at a time because of this certain, you know, yoga practices that he did or something. Anyway, it, it was very, you know, it got a lot of play, as you would imagine. A lot of people picked up on the news media and it was a big deal, right? Um, and so McEnroe was talking to him and asking him about spirituality. And it was interesting. What Sting said is, for me, the two places where I touch God are in sex and in music. And I remember thinking... Gosh, if that's what you need to be able to touch God, what about the rest of us that can't have sex for eight hours at a time and, and can't play music like Sting, right? But for a lot of people in our, in our culture, they think, you know, music and the arts are a place where you touch something transcendent. To go to a rock concert, you know, for a lot of people, it is the closest you get to something that's bigger than you that you're, you're in touch with, Right? And I think Christianity can help explain why that is. 
I think Christianity can help explain why that is. And so it's important that when we're telling people about what Christianity is, or if you're here at this conference wanting to explore more about Christianity, let me tell you this. Christianity says all of life matters. And Christianity says the feelings of transcendence and the feeling that you've touched truth that you sometimes get in participation in the arts, either enjoying them or making them, that's because you're made in the image of a creative God. It's not just a result of time plus chance plus matter. It's not the fact that evolutionary biology has brought you to this point and it's necessary for your survival as a species. No, it's because you're made in the image of a creative God. Christianity, you see, has to give an account for why the arts are so powerful. If we don't, then what we end up proclaiming to people as Christianity is something very shallow. It's not real Christianity. If, if you tell people about Christianity and it doesn't have room for the power of the arts, then you've not really clearly communicated what Christianity is all about. All right? Now, here's a, here's a thing that I think is helpful to think about. A lot of the problems in how Christians and others think about art and think about culture is they, they tend to think of culture as sort of static objects, particular things. I think a much more helpful way to think about culture, and this includes the arts, is to think of them as in a more dynamic sense. More culture as a verb than a noun. And what I mean is that all culture, the arts included, are a map of reality that may or may not correspond so well to reality itself. All culture is a map of reality. In other words, when you listen to a song, it's presenting a map of reality. And, and sometimes it's just suggesting something, sometimes it's questioning things in a way, but it's always connected to a map of reality. Um, I, I think there are some Christians that, like, I think even though I like a lot of things that Francis Schaeffer has, they probably have the little pamphlet over there, Art in the Bible, um, which is a helpful little pamphlet, but Schaeffer didn't have any room in his worldview for abstract art. And I think that's a real failing of his. Um, I think he too closely, if you ever read his book, um, How Then Shall We Live, which is basically a history of art from a Christian perspective, I think he too closely connects people's philosophical worldviews to the art they present. I think that, like, he intends to think that art is merely people expressing their worldview. I think sometimes art is an exploration, is a way of trying to, to, to sort of seek after truth rather than tell people what you think is true. And I, I think Schaefer doesn't see it that way, so I, I think, anyway, I throw that out there. But generally, it's still a map of reality is going on, even that shapes the questions and even shapes your search. So the culture is a map of reality. And here's what you need to understand. Everything that human beings make, they're making with stuff that God has made. And the stuff that God has made, the creation with all its God-glorifying potential, is stamped with meaning. In Psalm 19, it says that the heavens declare the praise of God. That means they're actively proclaiming the creation is actively proclaiming God's goodness and His glory. So there's nothing that you use to make art, whether it's you know the, the abilities that God has built into the creation for sound to happen through vibration and acoustics and physics and all that. Um, there's nothing that God has made that isn't stamped with meaning. And so whenever human beings, whether they're Christians or not, it doesn't matter, are involved in making anything, they're making it out of stuff that God has made, and the stuff that God has made is stamped with meaning. And, and as they make stuff with the stuff that God has made that's stamped with meaning, they're interacting with that meaning. At times they're listening and agreeing, at times they're fighting against it. And this is true for Christians and non-Christians. Everybody is having to interact with the stuff that God has made, the stuff that's stamped with meaning, and we're interacting in dialogue and intention often with that stuff. Now I'm going to talk more about that um, tomorrow, but I want to at least say that a little bit right now. What this means is, what this means is that people, everybody in this world is interacting with God and what he's saying. That's why in Romans chapter 1, 
Paul talks about how people are suppressing the truth. The truth is being proclaimed to them. Paul says in Romans 1 that it's clear, God has made it clear, His goodness, His power, from the creation, from the things that are made, which includes you. You're part of the creation. That, that He's speaking through that. And Paul says that we don't just sort of say, oh, that's interesting. No, we either embrace it or we suppress it. And when you get to Romans chapter 7, you find that even those who are Christians suppress the truth and fight against the truth. We don't want to do what we do and we do what we don't want to do, right? So that tension is going on with everybody. Culture is a way of actually living that out and, and speaking that out, okay? So, for instance, you know, when you go to a shopping mall, you're not just buying stuff. You, you're, you're probably living out a particular map of reality. There, there's, some, there's something you're saying. You may be saying that I need this because I don't trust God. Um, maybe I'm disappointed today, and so I want something that will make me feel better, so I go shop. Right? Or when I listen to a particular you know, music, I may be saying, you know, I'm mad at God and this helps me sort of live it out by osmosis without me actually having to say it. You know, there's, there's always that stuff is going on. Always this tension is going on um, in, in whatever we're involved in, all right? Here's the, the thing. I'm going to say this again tomorrow, but I just want to make this quick point now. Sometimes non-Christians, people who are outside of, you know, the circle of faith, and very consciously so, hear things that God is saying through the creation that Christians have blinded themselves to or have stopped up their ears to. So one of the things, one of the reasons the arts are important, and not just Christian art and Christian music, but the reason the arts are important is because it's a, at least a second-hand way of getting at what God is saying, but often there are people outside of the Christian community that are hearing some of the things that God is saying and hearing them better than those of us who are in the Christian community. Now, I'm going to talk about that a little bit more tomorrow when we talk about common grace and why that's an important doctrine. All right? But what it means is that art can give us perspective on God, ourselves, and our world. Um, a couple more reasons on why we're going to study this. It's a way of bringing glory to God, both in the making of art and the enjoying of it. God has made a whole huge world of God-glorifying potential that we're to explore. All of us, not just people who are artists, all of us have a calling to be creative and to enjoy creativity because God is creative. You know, it's the, the old question, why did God give you taste buds? And you might say, well, you know, the evolutionary biologists say so we won't eat poison and stuff and, you know, we won't die and this and that. But there's so much more. There's so much more. So much more variety of tastes that you don't really strictly need for survival, but you have. Just a world of, of beauty and color, um, variety. It takes a whole world to sort of begin to even bring out any of the, the glory of God. So even growing in our appreciation of art can help us glorify God and enjoy Him and His gifts. And finally, because the arts have a way, this is another reason to study the arts, the arts have a way of waking us from our slumbers and slipping in through our defenses. Particularly in our day and age where, you know, when you've been bombarded your whole life by TV commercials and advertising, that generally any, any message that comes to you straightforward, your initial reaction is stop. It's self-defense. I, I mean, you can't live in our world and not learn to put up defenses when messages come at you. The arts have a way of, of doing an end run around those defenses. I know for me, for instance, you know, I got to a point in my life where I realized, you know, because of some situations, I had a, a kid who I was real good friends with, we were going to be roommates in college. My senior year in, college, senior year in high school, he was brutally murdered. I, I remember, you know, thinking that Christians shouldn't cry about such things, and I remember I didn't cry for at least like five or six years, until finally a friend of mine was like, you know, it's really not right that you never cry about anything. And I thought I just had the fruit of self-control. Let me tell you. If you don't have all the fruit of the Spirit, you don't have any. Because it's not fruits, and you get to pick which one fits your temperament anyway. Uh, it's fruit. It's singular, right? So if, if I thought I had the fruit of self-control, but I had no joy, right? Because I killed my emotions. 
was trying to keep them. So it wasn't really self-control. It was really the flesh masquerading as self-control, right? All right, so um, I know that's a big thing. J Jonathan Edwards, his book on uh, charity and its fruits, explores that if you, if you want to read something heavy this summer. Um, anyway, but I remember, you know, for me, it's difficult to get emotionally unstuck. But man, there are movies that can do it. Right? Spitfire Grill. If I need to cry, I can watch that movie and I can cry. Parenthood. I, I know that's an old movie, but it really gets me. I don't know why. <laughs> Probably because it makes you laugh and then it turns around and, and gets you your heartstrings. And so it's like I don't see it coming. Like there's some movies where you know, oh, it's going to be sad. And you kind of, you know, you know, buck up for it so you're going to be able to deal with it. But there's others that catch you when you didn't see it coming. So the arts have a way of slipping in, don't they? And uh, I, I think about this. One of my favorite hymn writers, William Cooper, he and John Newton wrote a, one of a bunch of great hymns. He wrote, There's a Fountain Filled with Blood, and uh, some other um, hymns, God Moves in Mysterious Ways. William Cooper said this in one of his letters. He said, A volume of verse, remember he's a poet and hymn writer, a volume of verse is a fiddle that puts the whole universe in motion. Now, what you need to understand about William Cooper, you know about John, uh, John Newton and William Wilberforce and their fight against slavery to abolish the Atlantic slave trade? What you may not know is that William Cooper started writing poems attacking the slave trade first before either of those guys got engaged in the issue. And Cooper had a lot to do with beginning, beginning people questioning it. The, 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 to, to, to make some kind of movement like that in a society you have to start with questioning the status quo. The arts are particularly good at questioning the status quo. And, and you've got to start there. And I think there's lots of historical examples of that sort of thing. All right. Thoughts on that? Any, did, did I raise any particular questions you want me to hit right now? I could. All right, we'll plunge in then. You'll learn. If you don't ask the question quick, I'm just going to plunge right back in. Good. What is art anyway then? I've probably made some, some comments that you might think heard some aspects about what, what I think art is. Let me, let me dive into it a little more specifically. I think here's a, a really good definition for me. It's a very hard thing to get a, get a handle on. You know, I've talked about going to that, that Biblical World of Life View conference, the first RUF Biblical World of Life View conference. There wasn't a single seminar on the arts. And there was all this stuff, negative stuff about rock music. I went away from that conference feeling like the, the message I got, which I knew wasn't true, but what I got from that conference was every single area of human Endeavor and work is a great place for you as a Christian to be involved, except popular culture. Don't waste your time. So I went back to seminary, and I wrote my ethics paper on criteria for judging rock music because I was just so mad that, that these reformed people were, were you know, buying into this kind of idea that rock music was dangerous and trivial. And, you know, it can't be both. It can't be both. If it's trivial then it's not really that dangerous. And if it's dangerous, it's certainly not trivial. But most Christians, even Reformed Christians, tend to think rock music is dangerous and or trivial. Generally both. Anyway, um, that started me on, on sort of thinking about some of these issues. Um, and, and one of my really favorite... Well, here's where I was going with that. To try to describe or define what art is, is like trying to define rock music. The biggest difficulty in writing a paper on criteria for judging rock music is to describe to people in words what rock music really is. We all know it when we hear it, but try to define it, try to describe it. It's actually very hard to talk much about music as a, as a psychoacoustical phenomenon with words. If you're into music, and I'll tell you, like I'm going to focus mostly on music here, there's a guy, Jeremy Begbie, who wrote a book, the Christianity Today, named the Theology Book of the Year last year or the year before. It's called Resounding Truth. Resounding or Resounding Truth. It's a great book on how music helps us understand theology and how theology helps us understand music. But he talks about this. It's hard to write a 400-page book on music and not have accompanying music for you to listen to. So it, it, it's kind of like that in trying to define art. But here's one of the things I wanna, want you to understand about art. And this is from a guy named Arthur Danto, who's not a Christian, but Tim Keller quotes it in, a, in an essay he has, where he says, Art is getting across indefinable but inescapable meaning. What he's saying is, art is getting at meaning. It means something. 
It's inescapable. It means something, but it's indefinable. In other words, you can't just say it the same way with words. Now, I understand that words can be used in an artistic way as well. Understand? But he's trying to get at this idea that there's meaning to art, but it's different. Art is different than just saying it. Um, there's a story about Flannery O'Connor, right, the Catholic Christian uh, writer. And she was asked one time what one of her short stories meant. And she said, if I could tell you that, I wouldn't have had to write the story. Do you understand that? She says, if I could tell you what this story is about, I wouldn't have had to write the story. I remember how shocked I was the first time I heard some novelist talk about writing a novel and talk about not knowing how it was going to end. And I remember thinking, well, that's bizarre. How can you write a book if you don't know like your, the end of your story? But that's true. The, the more you talk with artists and you ask them, what does this mean? They may not really be able to tell you. I remember working with this band in the studio years ago, Jason and the Scorchers. They were a great old, you know, kind of country punk band. And they had a line in one of their songs about the local shaker. And I asked Jason, I was like, was that, I, you know, I thought maybe that was like a religious reference to the shakers. I was like, what is that? He goes, he wrote this, mind you. He goes, I don't know. I was like, what? He goes, well, you know, it could be like the local shaker, like, you know, the Christian shaker. But it could be like a mover and a shaker. So he's like, you know, the person who's like the important person in town. But just that just intrigued me. He doesn't really know. And, and I, I've heard painters say the same kind of thing. Mako Fujimura, who's up in New York, is a great painter, paints a lot of pretty abstract sorts of things. He says this, like, how do you picture, how do you paint glory anyway? Right? How do you paint it? You, there's always a sense in which you're reaching for something that you can't fully grasp. And that's the arts. And it, it, I put it another way. Um, reading The Lord of the Rings on a plane, coming back from London. I'd read it before, but I was in the middle of like five seats. You know how you've ever been on that? This is miserable, right? Overnight flight, you're in the middle of five people, you know, four people on either side, you don't know. And just bawling as I'm reading about the coronation of Aragorn. It's so beautiful. But Tolkien never says, you know, that he's beautiful. But he describes him in such a way that even Americans could think a king would be a wonderful thing. And, and, and so our hearts long for that. You long for a king who bears the sword that was broken, that's now been reforged, and a king who has the hands of a healer. The two images that Tolkien says, you'll, you'll know he's the true king because he'll have the hands of a healer, and he will be the one who bears the sword that was broken, that's now been reforged, he's going to bring justice and righteousness. And, and the way he describes that, he never has to say, Aragorn is beautiful, but you resonate with it. That's the difference between good writing and bad writing. In bad novel writing, you just say the heroine, she's really pretty. But, but in, a, in a good writing, artistic writing, you describe her in a way where everybody knows that. And, and C.S. Lewis has another way of getting at this in one of his essays on reflections on the Psalms. He says, you know, which is more true to say that God is omnipotent or to say that God is a rock? Which is more true? Now, we tend to think that omnipotent is more specific and scientific, sounds like theological language. But it's an approximation as well. It's a way of saying God's not limited in this aspect, but we really don't know. We're nearly not saying so much positive about him as saying there's a lack of limit to him in this regard. And what Lewis says, he goes, both of those words are trying to get at something that they can't fully grasp. And the one that God uses to describe himself is God as a rock. Now, some of us aren't that comfortable with that because you can misinterpret that image. God says that's okay. There's tons of metaphors in the Bible, and if you embrace all of them, they tend to balance each other out. It's one of the reasons I love the hymns, because they tend to bring out so many of them rather than just a couple. And it helps us get a more full or picture of who God is. So the arts are getting across indefinable but inescapable meaning. They're getting, if you say it just flat out, it ends up not being very artistic. I want to give you my favorite example. A song by Patty Griffin. Any Patty Griffin fans? I wanted to play it, 
But I don't have anything to play it, and you wouldn't hear it over that silly thing back there anyway. Can you all hear me still with, with that thing going on? Okay. Um, okay, Patty Griffin. I remember um, a couple records back. Um, oh, which record is this that has um, Making Pies on it? Yeah, that's right. 10,000 Kisses? Yeah. All right, so that record, I remember reading an interview with her about that record. And she basically says, the theme of this record is that life is really hard, but you've got to just keep walking on. Life is hard, but you just kind of get up and walk on. You have to. You can't quit. That's what she says to an interviewer about what the record's about. But she never says that in any of the songs on the record. What she says is this. She writes a song, Making Pies. Making Pies is about uh, a lady who's uh, from Tabletop, Massachusetts, where they have this pie factory. She works in the pie factory. She lives this dreary, lonely existence. As the song goes on, you discover that she lost her love in the war when the bombs rained on the world. And she sings, after that, she sings, You could cry or die or just make pies all day. I'm making pies. I, I don't know, but for me, man. That's her way of saying life is difficult. Tragedy comes into life all the time, but you got to just keep going. You could die, cry, <coughs> or die, or just make pies all day. I'm making pies. So she goes in 9 to 5 and just makes pies. You see the difference? Now, it's one of the problems with a lot of Christian music that's sort of under the title Christian music as a, as a genre is that Christians tend to be a little uncomfortable with vague meaning. We tend to like things very nice and neat and defined. And, you know, what are you saying? Do you mean this? You better not mean this. I want to make sure you don't mean this. Right? We tend to be really anal about that stuff. And the Reformed tradition, probably the most anal of all. Okay? And if you're Reformed and fundamentalist together, goodness. Uh, so, you know, well, Christian music, I think, in a lot of ways, because Christian radio is basically determined by the people that gives money to support Christian radio. You know, if you ever listen to a Christian radio station, you probably don't. But if you do, you, what you need to understand is it's your parents that are giving money to keep the station afloat. So the songs that they play aren't really songs that young people would like because that would offend the people who are actually paying to keep the station on the air. Do you see the problem? What it means then is the Christian record companies can only write, put out songs that are going to get played on Christian radio, right? It's no wonder it doesn't connect with most young people. I remember driving, um, I guess I was driving through Alabama or on my way to Atlanta, and I saw a sign for a Christian radio station, a big billboard, and their kind of motto was, safe for the whole family. Oh my gosh. That's the point of art? That's the point of music? To be safe for the whole family? But you see, that's, that's why. So, here's what's happened. Here's what happened. And here's why a lot of that, as music and as art, was not very satisfying. And what's fascinating to know is, I don't know anybody in the Christian music industry that actually listens to Christian music. Anyway, they all listen to other music. But, but there's all these sort of constraints to the kind of stuff they can write and still have it fit within the genre of Christian I had a, a former roommate, this guy Wes King, wrote an amazing song about he and his wife's struggle with infertility. And I remember the Gospel Music Association said it wasn't a Christian song because it didn't name Jesus. But the entire song was a prayer. Right? The entire song is a prayer to God. Um, unbelievable, this, this kind of stuff, right? Anyway, what happens is Christians tend to be very comfortable with propositions and not with questions and metaphors and these sorts of things. So, you know, Christian music, if it wants to say, you should praise God all the time, that's probably what it's going to say. You should praise God all the time. Let's do that three times. And then, you know, maybe the first one should be, you should praise Him here. It, but it, it, does, it, doesn't do things, it doesn't do things in an artistic way. You see that? It, it, as art, it tends to be not very satisfying. Because art isn't just propositions. It tends to be language that evokes questions and the imagination and that sort of thing, right? It's hard to get at this, but that, that's kind of what I'm talking about here. Um, now, 
the second point to talk about what is art anyway, and I've mentioned this a little bit just to make this more explicit. Art seeks to get at something bigger than who we are. Um, uh, here's, here's what Tim Keller says, and I think he's right. Every artist, whether they know it or not, has that desire for the far-off country that C.S. Lewis describes. Artists see connections that others miss, and they see questions that sometimes others just kind of walk by. I had a great example of that, too, at least for me. I don't know if it'll mean much to you. But my wife and I honeymooned out in Northern California at a place called St. Ori's. It's an awesome place. It's like this Russian, looks like this Russian Orthodox church kind of village, bed and breakfast with all these cool little cottages on the cliff overlooking the ocean. It's awesome. And so we, we stayed there for our honeymoon. A few years after that, Santa McCracken, Derek Webb, um, friends, they got married, and we told them about where we had our honeymoon. They went to the same place, okay? So they go honeymoon in the same place that we have. And Sandra comes back and writes this song about it um, called Gypsy Flat Road. Now, what's fascinating is I passed by the Gypsy Flat Road a bunch of times. I never noticed it. It never stirred up any song in me. It's just, okay, that's how you get to the gas station. You go by the Gypsy Flat Road, right? It also rained the whole time they were out there. Which on your honeymoon isn't that big a deal, <laughs> but um, <laughs> she comes back and she writes this song, right? She writes this song, and, and I love. She writes a song about her new marriage and what it means to just ponder the way God has brought redemption out of so much brokenness. And um, she says this: across the Gypsy Flat Road, where everything closes down tonight, which. You know, basically everything closes down after dark. Um, across the gypsy flat road, where the steps and the stars are light, and it rained all day, and it rained all day, and it rained all day with the bounty of new wine. What was incurable, desperate blindness has been bound up from all sides with loving kindness, comfort for sorrow, rivers for dryness, Come and drink, you who have no money. So she takes the fact that it rained on her entire honeymoon and the gypsy flat road and sees connections and ponders things that, you know, right over my head, right? Artists just tend to see that. But it helps me see it now. You see, that's part of how her gift helps me even reflect back on my own marriage and my own honeymoon. And do I, do I think about what an unbelievable privilege and what an instrument of healing marriage can be? Right? Um, third point, arts are essential for grasping truth. Now, rather than Christians, you know, being right when they think art is trivial, actually art is essential for grasping truth. Because truth is not really grasped as long as you just have propositions in your head. It's not grasped until it's been pictured, in a sense, so it can be sensed on your heart. Now here I'm following people like Tim Keller, C.S. Lewis, Jonathan Edwards. The idea that until truth has been sensed on the heart, it's not something you really believe. And, and to do that, it has to be pictured in some sort of way. Again, a lot of my work with hymns and thinking about why do hymns resonate with us has led me in the same direction. It's, it's, it's important that these images connect with our heart. William Cooper writes a hymn about that called Sometimes a Light Surprises. Do you know this hymn? He wrote this hymn, actually, he was at an early morning prayer meeting. He and a few of the other um, more fired up Christians in John Newton's church would get together about six in the morning on Sunday mornings. They would have a, a prayer meeting before the service would start. And at one of those prayer meetings, they would just, you know, pray, and sometimes somebody would just start a hymn and they would all join in. Um, somebody sang a hymn. We actually don't know what hymn it was. He quotes a line from it in his diary, but nobody's been able to figure out what hymn they actually sang that inspired Sometimes a Light. But he writes, Sometimes a Light Surprises, says this, Sometimes a light surprises the Christian while he sings. It is the Lord who rises with healing in his wings. So you see, he's saying that uh, this picture, that's in the Bible, by the way, the idea that the Lord, you know, rises with healing in His wings. But it's a metaphor. 
but there's a sense of what he's saying is sometimes that image actually connects to our heart. Doesn't, doesn't always happen. Doesn't happen every time you read the Bible. Doesn't happen every time you sing. But sometimes a light, there's an extra sort of opening up. There's something that you've grabbed or cast, grasped now, that you don't or normally understand. A sense in which the light has surprised you. And what is it that surprised you? This image has went from just being something you hear to something you know. And you know in your heart. Okay? I like uh, John Hyatt. He's one of my favorite songwriters. He has a great quote, I think, that gets at this. Um, he says, when you listen to black gospel music, you know there's a God. When you listen to white gospel music, you say, no, there's not. <laughs> I know that was a little mean, but it's still, it's funny, so i got to use it. Um, you know, I, I have this whole little thing about historical perspective. I don't know if I want to get into that. Here's the thing I want you to see. The Reformation was not just a recovery of true doctrine. The best way to understand the recovery or the Reformation is there was an explosion of new metaphors for how people thought about God and the gospel. Because what preceded the Reformation is people actually began to read the Bible and read it for what it actually said. People like John Calvin and Martin Luther were trained to be lawyers, which means they were trained to read texts for what they actually said. That isn't how people read the Bible at that point in time. They read it allegorically. They didn't really read it for what it actually said. When they began to read the Bible for what it said, when they began to preach messages from the Bible, explaining to people what the Bible said, when they began to publish Bibles in people's own language, what you see is an explosion of new metaphors in all of the popular culture of the Reformation. Right before the Reformation, the dominant image the dominant metaphor for Christ was Christ as judge. If you ask the normal person, how did they think of Christ, they thought of him as a terrifying judge. And if you know anything about Martin Luther's experience, that's how he thought about it. First time he celebrated communion, his knees were shaking, his hands were shaking, he was so nervous that he might do something wrong that he actually spilled a little bit of the wine. And then he really freaked out, just about had a nervous breakdown. If you ever... Um, you know, have seen any of the passion plays. People, they would come to your little village and put on this production that was just to scare the living daylights out of you. Now, Christ as judge is a biblical metaphor. Christ is the judge. And he will judge all of us one day. But the Bible has so many other metaphors. And what you see is in all the things like the wood cuttings and the sermons and all that stuff, right before the Reformation, Christ as judge dominates. At the dawn of the Reformation, there's an explosion of new metaphors. You can see it in the hymns, you can see it in the woodcuts, you can see it in plays that are being written. You see it all over the place. What happens at the Reformation is people's images and metaphors changed, and that changed their whole reality. Changed their whole reality, their whole sense of who God is and what the gospel is. Not only that, but for the first time, people be, be, were allowed to sing in church again. I don't know if you know this, but in the 400s, the church outlawed singing by the lay people. The only people that were allowed to sing were trained choirs of priests. The common people couldn't sing in church from, for a thousand years, basically. From 400 till John Huss did it with his little group of followers in Bavaria around 1400, but it's really Lutheran and Lutherans picking up on what Huss started that, that bring congregational singing. So what, what you see here in the Reformation, two the huge things that happen. For the first time in years and years and years, common people can actually drink the blood of Christ, not just the wafer, and they can sing. And one of the Catholic cardinals, and you've got to understand, he's a Catholic cardinal, he didn't like Lutheranism, so that's his understanding. But listen to what he says. This is the end of point number four, this quote. Nearly a century after the beginning of the Reformation, the Carmelite monk Thomas Agesu, so he's a Catholic cardinal, marveled at how securely Luther's hymns had planted Lutheranism in Germany. The German Jesuit Catholic lamented in 1620 that from the Jesuit point of view, Martin Luther had destroyed more souls with his hymns 
than with all of his writing and preaching. Now what's interesting is, I don't think that's the story you hear. But a guy who was there <coughs> says that Luther's hymns were far more effective than his writing. But I think most of us think about the church history and we tend to think of it as important preachers and important books. It's fascinating, isn't it? So many of our sort of reformed spiritual heroes actually put together hymn books, but you don't ever hear about it, right? But J.C. Ryle did, George Whitfield, right, put together hymns, Spurgeon put together, on and on and on. I could name a lot of them, actually. So it's important for you to understand, time and time again, the arts have had a very important role in the church and in the world. Um, fifth point here. I do think it's important that as we think about the arts, that we beware of the danger of thinking about the arts from a Eurocentric perspective. Jeremy Begbie, I mentioned his book, Resounding Truth, I think is an excellent book at kind of capturing this tension. So you don't want to say, and I don't believe, in sort of just such absolute pluralistic relativism that you can't say anything at all about any art or make any kind of judgments about any art. On Thursday, I'm going to talk about criteria for judging rock music and thinking about it. And on Friday, I'm going to talk about jazz, all right? And I'm going to say things about what makes it good and not as good and all that kind of stuff, okay? But I think it's very important that you don't think that one particular stream of music in the world has really captured this is what good music is, and every other music has to fit into criteria that are derived from this kind of music. In other words, classical music tradition tends to analyze what made some of this music work so well and then say, well, these are now the rules and other music needs to conform to these and if it doesn't, it's not as good as this music. That's a really flawed methodology. Different musics, different arts have their own sense of what makes them work well. And you need to, you need to remember that. Um, the way Begbie puts it here I think is helpful. He says, as more and more non-Western music is made accessible, we are becoming far more conscious of what anthropologists of music, they're ethnomusicologists, what we really call it, have long been telling us that there is no such thing as music, singular, only musics, plural. Finding a definition of music that encompasses Indonesian, Gamelian, and say J.S. Bach, St. John's Passion, seems well nigh impossible. Not only does applying our categories of musical appreciation to other musics often make little sense, but the attempt to use even our concept of music in other cultural settings runs into grave difficulties. And of course, behind the desire to speak globally and monolithically of music, there often lies more than a whiff of Western conceit. And is it um, hegemony? I don't know how you say that word. Hegemony? Okay. A presumption that our music represents the genuine, that our music represents the genuine and most advanced article, and any other purported, purported music is to be treated as inferior to it. Again, this doesn't mean that we can make no judgments about the arts, but all judgments require being sensitive to what makes this art work. In other words, the, way, the reason that you hear a piano in tune is not because of something that's true in physics and in God's created order. Because your piano is not in tune. It's actually tuned out of tune in every key. It's what they call temper tuning. If you've ever seen somebody tune a piano, they have a formula where they listen to these two notes and how many beats in a particular time makes it just enough out of tune that it's sort of equally out of tune for every key. Normally, if you, if you play an instrument like guitar, you can see this. Like if you play a G chord, the open B string is a little bit sharp. Actually, it's, it's mostly in tune, but it needs to be a little flat. The third of a major chord, to be really in tune, needs to be a little bit flat. But you can't be doing that. You can't be, every time you play a chord, tuning whatever string the third is on is a little flat. You can't do that on your piano, unless you're going to play in one key, and you can tune your piano so it's really in tune for that key. So, temper tuning was developed which means that the piano isn't really in tune. But it sounds in tune to you. And I know people, musicians, that have done seminars in Reformed PCA churches where they went and said, play a chord, this is a chord, this is in tune. And the reason it's in tune is because God has created an orderly universe. 
But the fact is, it's not in tune. And it sounds in tune to you because you've been conditioned to think that temper tuning sounds in tune. But it doesn't. It's not in tune. According to physics, according to acoustics, it's not in tune. So we need to be very careful about thinking that there's an objective standard of what good is and then thinking that we can somehow figure that out and apply that. That goes for the visual arts, it goes for musical arts. It's much more complicated than that. In other words, there is a whole world of God-glorifying potential in music. And the great Western classical music tradition explores part of that. But other kinds of music explore other parts of that. And there's great music in all those different streams and traditions, right? That all brings out different aspects of who God is and what he's made, all right? How are we doing? Do I have time to get to the last point? I do if I go quick. I'm going to go quick. So, here's the thing to, to understand. Basic point about this. To begin to make any kinds of judgments about art, you have to have a sense of what's the purpose of art. Before you can, if you ever say this is good, good as a judgment means good at something. It, it expects and implies a purpose. Good has to have a sense of purpose. You don't say something is good in abstract. Goodness always refer to good at something. And so, what is the purpose? Now, a lot of people, they have a sense of purpose. They may have not articulated it. But there's a lots of things that people would say, here's the purpose part. If we had time, and I hadn't given you this little outline, which would allow you to cheat, I would, I would go do a survey. What do you think the purpose of art is? And I think we would get lots of different answers. Some people would say it's to speak truthfully. Some people would say it's to show beauty. Some people would say it's to um, you know, help people understand who Jesus is. Some people would say it's a way of expressing your emotions and your angst. Other people would say it's really helpful for changing my mood when I'm really bummed out and I listen to some music kind of picks me up. There are lots of different things that people would say. Some people would say, don't get so heavy. It's just fun. I just like listening to music. It's fun, right? It's for recreation. What I want to say to you is all of those are valid sub-purposes of art. But then none of those are the purpose of art. The only purpose of art that's big enough is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. The reason that's important is to understand music and the arts are part of human cultural activity. It's the Greek idea that somehow man stole music from the gods. The Bible doesn't say that God gave music to, to people like it was a divine gift in that way. The Bible says that music is a human activity. It's a way of living out before God who we are and what we think reality is. And all human culture, all humans... The purpose of humans is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Therefore, the purpose of anything that humans do is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That means one of the sub-purposes is valid. It's fine to make music. One of the ways you can glorify God and enjoy Him is by music that's just fun. That's fine. One of the ways to glorify God and enjoy Him forever is to speak about the beauty of what we long for, but we don't even know how to express one way to glorify God and enjoy Him forever is to speak truthfully about the brokenness here. Right? All of those things are encompassed under this idea of purpose. This bigger view of purpose is so important. And what it does is it opens you up to a multifaceted way of thinking about what is good and what is bad. What can we commend in art? And this is, in fact, what the Bible does. Here's my Bible verse. We finally got to it. It's the very last thing of the talk. It's Philippians 4.8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. What Paul's laying out there is commend what you can commend in everything. He doesn't say if it's good, you know, keep it in your record collection. If it's bad, you better burn it. No, he says there's, there's goodness, there's something to commend in everything. So what he's opening us to thinking about is a multifaceted approach. So when I talk in, in two days about criteria for judging rock music, I'm going to say, look, you're able to say that the production on this record is amazing. The vocal performance is amazing. The words, I don't really think they're very deep. They're pretty trite and trivial. But these are all commendable aspects. And that's going to be true of everything, whether it's made by Christians or people who are outside of the Christian community. It doesn't matter. Anything made by human beings after the fall has things about it that are not great. 
And everything made by human beings, made in the image of God, has things that you can commend. There are no absolute black and white, this is good, this is bad statement that you can make about art. It's all going to be various um, aspects of what can we commend and what would we not commend. And what it helps you to do is to begin to think in terms of, you know, what is praiseworthy about this? Without having to say, well, this is better than this, and this is good, this is bad. It, it doesn't really work that way. I don't think it's a very helpful way of engaging God's world. So, go in peace. Um, we will pick this up tomorrow.